0: Morning. Welcome to Christ Community Church. If you are a student, you are dismissed. The rest of us, welcome. <laughs> I'm glad you're here today. Bless you. Bless you. Bless you. Um,
1: Larry moved us up closer.
0: Yeah, I hate being so far back. I feel like I'm yelling at you, and I don't want to do that unless you need yelling. That's a, um What a great line, Christopher. There's no mistake that we could ever make that would make God change. If you go, if you take a theology class in college or seminary or something, one of the things that they'll teach you in theology is that there's certain qualities that only God possesses and then there's certain qualities that God has shared with his image bearers. Um, I don't know that they mentioned this when when I was in (laughs) grad school, but it is true that one of the things that would make God different, unique, set apart from us, a quality that He possesses that not one person in this room shares with Him is that He has the ability to not let our mistakes change how He feels about us. You might say, "Oh, I'd never change how I feel about my mate or my kids or my." Good for you. Good, good effort. Good effort. Hope you hope you (laughs) achieve that. The truth is, only God can say with absolute honesty: no matter what you do, and no matter how many times you do it, I will never change the way I feel about you. Never. That's that's an amazing attribute, isn't it?
1: In a book that I teach, at the end, a mother is begging forgiveness of a child, and 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 many terrible things have happened in the book, and she can't, the mother can't forgive herself, um, and she's hooked on that idea, forgive and forget, as if that's a real thing, and that's the ch- stupid, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not and that the, stupid. It, because we don't forget. Mm-hmm. God removes our sin and forgets, mm-hmm. but we can't do it, and. The girl, the, the, the person that the mother is begging forgiveness of, her daughter, says, Mother, mother, no, no. The definition of grace is remember and forgive. Yes. yes. For us on this. Yes. in this life. Yes. Um, it'll be different in the other. What a great definition.
0: Dang. That's good. That's, that's I wish good I'd stuff, written that. Yeah. Me, Me too. I wish I'd have said it. Actually, that's she says, good.
1: "Forgive and remember." Yeah. That—that's grace.
0: That's worth going home and pondering. That's good, right? Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. We're in the. We are beginning. Last week we began, and we're continuing in a little study um, where we're going to focus on two verses in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, Exodus thirty-four. Verses 6 and 7. And we started this study last Sunday. And um, we're going to spend the month of May looking at these two verses. Primarily, we're going to focus on five attributes of God in those two verses. But we're, to appreciate these five attributes of God We need to have a little background and an understanding of what's going on. Why why would God say these words here, right now? Why would He say them to Moses? Why would He say them at this moment in the history of the Bible? Uh, What's going on? So that's what we're going to continue with a little bit of an introduction today. And then next week we'll start with the the first of these attributes. One of the things I said last week was that The Bible is an amazing book because it does address and offer help and wisdom uh, on a million different things related to our lives. From marriage to parenting to finances to health to end times to moral goodness and all kinds of things. But if you and I don't, And we should look to the Bible to get help with those issues and every other issue that we'll ever face in life. A wise person will do that. But it is incredibly important that we realize that that's not why the Bible was written. It helps us with those things. But that's not why it was written. It was written to reveal to us who God is. And if we miss that... We will, well, you can imagine, going to Disney World. How was Disney World? Well, it was good. You know, we, we ate a lot of hot dogs and um, drank a lot of Diet Cokes. Oh, okay. yeah, well, that's good. But that's, you came home from Disney World and that's what you got? Well, yeah. Did you not ride all the rides? Oh, no, we didn't ride any rides. You went to Disney World and you didn't ride any rides? No, we didn't do any of that. We just ate a lot of hot dogs, drank a lot of Diet Cokes. They've got really good Diet Cokes and really good hot dogs down there. Well, that's fine, but you missed the point. Right? So, we read the Bible, hopefully, to accomplish its main purpose. And that is to get a grasp on an ongoing lifetime journey of, tr- of growing in our understanding of the God of the universe, an eternal God. Um, Yeah, so it's important that we see that. So we started a new study last week on these two verses, Exodus 34, 6, and 7. I declared to you, or we declared to you, that these verses are uniquely important for lots of reasons. I gave you three. One was that this was the very first time in the Bible that God gives us, or the Bible gives us, a very detailed introduction to who He is. The, the Bible, for the very first time, what's God like? Well, I can tell you what He's like. He's full of compassion. He's full of grace. He's slow to get angry. He is abundant in covenant love and in compassion. Or faithfulness, should I say. Com- uh, faithfulness. That's what God's like. And then it goes on to reveal some other things. But this is the very first time the Bible introduces to us who God is. Another reason it's important is because it's not just that the Bible introduces God to us. God introduces himself to us. He takes the time in this passage to tell us himself what I'm like. And then the the third reason that I think it's important is that Those two verses, verses 6 and 7, are the most repeated verses in the entire Bible. Other Bible writers quote Moses and those two verses more than any other verses in the entire Bible. And then we talked a little bit about the importance of repetition. And in all great literature and all great mothers share something in common. And that is that they use the power of repetition to emphasize that which is important. To emphasize, to clarify, to flesh out things. And the Bible does that. The Bible will make a statement. And it will only give us so much information, so much truth. And then later on, it will repeat that truth, that statement again. And it will repeat it uh, 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 it will repeat it exactly all of, the, all of the earlier truth the previous truth sometimes it will pull out a part of the earlier statement and we're going to look at that in just a minute um, because it's wanting to focus on something important or it will turn the words around it will change the order say the same verse but say it in a different order. Again, all of these things communicate, I'm trying to show you something. I'm trying to teach you something. I'm trying to reveal to you more of who I am and what I want you to know. Let me, the, let me give you an example. I Read for me Exodus 34, 6, and 7, please, friend. I will. Now I, listen carefully to what she reads because I'm going to read it in another passage in Deuteronomy 5, and I want you to see if you can see the difference, okay?
1: Yahweh, Yahweh, the God of compassion and mercy. Well, the Lord passed, sorry, I started in the wrong place. The Lord passed in front of Moses and called out, Yahweh, Yahweh, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity rebellion and sin but I do not excuse the guilty I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren the entire family is affected even children in the third and fourth generations
0: okay thank you and last week we talked about the tension in those two verses between the the part that we rejoice uh, in knowing about God and the part in verse 7 that's more intimidating, more awe-inspiring, more heavy. Uh, yeah, I guess I, would, I guess I could say it that way. Uh, now, we jump over to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Moses, this is still Moses, so Moses is quoting himself. He's quoting what he said earlier in Exodus 34. But listen to what he says this time. He says, Yahweh said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery. Have no other gods before me. Don't make idols of things in the heavens, the earth, or in the waters. Don't bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord, am a jealous or passionate God. I punish the children for the parents' sins to the third and the fourth generation of people who hate me. But I show love to a thousand generations of people who love me. Did you notice? In Deuteronomy chapter five, Moses adds something that he did not say in Exodus 34. It's not just that God um, sees Logan. Logan does something really bad. And he says, and God says, "Well, dead come, Logan." Your great-great-grandchildren, I'm going to zap them for what you did. If all we had was Exodus 34, you could draw that conclusion. But then in numbers chapter five I'm sorry, Deuteronomy chapter five, God shows Moses something that needs to be added so that we can see the greater truth. It fleshes it out. It clarifies it. It makes it more understandable. And what he adds is, it's not that God is punishing your great-grandson for something you do. What's happening is, your son sees you, watches you live your life, and if you live your life consistently telling God, no, you're not the boss of me. I'll do life my way. And your son watches that and says, well, that's a good way to live. I'm going to do that too. And then his son watches him do the same thing. And then his son watches him. You have created a chain reaction or a A lifestyle for your family lineage of living life where you tell God no. Now let me translate that for you in Bible language. You hate God. That's what it says. But that's all. But most people I don't think would verbalize I hate God. I don't think there's. How many people in the world would say that? That's That's not how people tell God I hate you. How we communicate we hate God is by saying, God, I've got this. I'm just going to live life the way I want. You're not in charge of me. And they that great-grandson experiences the consequences of living a life that continually, consistently declares, God's not the boss of me, just like his great-granddaddy did. That's what that means. And I could go into other examples. There's, a, there's this uh, Exodus 34, 6 and 7. It's actually quoted over 30 times. 33, 34 times throughout the rest of the Bible. So if you take all of those and you look at them, what you, you discover, oh, that's what Exodus 34, 6 and 7 means. Okay. So, We ended last week with what I just said, and that is the power of our example. The power and the impact of my example on my future generations. And that can be for great good over a child to grow up in a family where they watch their parents get up on a regular basis And do their best to say yes to God throughout the day. And then their child. And then their child. The power of choosing to do that. What the Bible would suggest is the impact of that daily choice. Not to be perfect, but to try. To try to get up and say yes God. As you go through your day. The power of that impact will last a thousand generations. That's what Moses is trying to tell us there. The power of our, of, of our impact on our future generations. Okay, we've got to move along here. Today what I want us to do is if you will turn to Exodus 32. We're going to look at Exodus 32 and I'm going to answer the question real quickly or we're going to try to answer the question real quickly why did God choose this moment to introduce himself to Moses? Moses is up in Exodus 34. Moses is up on Mount Sinai again, and he's in a cave, and he's crying out to God, and in the middle of Moses crying out to God, God introduces himself to Moses. Why did God do that, and why did he do it then? All right, would you... Precious friend, read Exodus 32, the first 10 verses. I will,
1: you can follow along. 32,
0: first 10 verses. You have it.
1: When the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. Come on, they said, make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what happened. (laughs) This, This verse makes me laugh. It's terrible, but it's so human that it makes me laugh. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. Like, he's not producing, so chop, chop, he's out of here. Mm -hmm. So Aaron said, Take the gold rings from the ears of your wives and sons and daughters and bring them to me. All the people took the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. Then Aaron, it's Moses' brother, um, took the gold and melted it down and molded it into the shape of a calf. When the people saw it, they exclaimed, Oh, Israel, these are, are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Aaron saw how excited the people were, so he built an altar in front of the calf. Then he announced, tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord. The people got up early the next morning to sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings. After this, they celebrated with feasting and drinking, and they indulged in pagan revelry. The Lord told Moses, quick, go down the mountain. Your people, whom you have brought from the land of Egypt, have corrupted corrupted themselves. How quickly they have turned away from the way I commanded them to live. They have melted down gold and made a calf and they have bowed down before it and sacrificed to it. They are saying, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Mm. Then the Lord said, I have seen how stubborn and rebellious these people are. Now leave me alone so my fierce anger can blaze against them and I will destroy them. Then I will make you, Moses, into a great nation.
0: Very ominous, tragic, solemn, Uh, moment when Moses and God have this encounter Um, yeah it's a deal and uh, the well I don't have time to go into the impact, had that gone differently, had Moses responded differently our world would be different our world would be different the destiny of humanity would be different I'm going to try to help you get a 30,000 feet view of the, at least the, the majority, the lion's share of the book of Exodus real quick, okay? <clears throat> you know how Exodus starts. Uh, Israel is uh, enslaved in Egypt, and God sends Moses uh, from Mount Sinai. This is where Moses has been living, right, for 40 years. This is where Moses has been living. So he knows Mount Sinai very well, Okay? Uh, he sends Moses back to Egypt to deliver or rescue uh, his people from slavery. And he, and he takes them through the Red Sea. And then for a year, they wander. Uh, well, not wander. They, they travel from the Red Sea to Mount Sinai. And if you could get in your mind that that's sort of uh, God meeting Israel as a nation. Now, because in Genesis, Israel is a family. Right? And so we get to Exodus, and now all of a sudden this family has become a nation. And God meets this nation. And he begins to pursue her or woo her. Or the word I, I'd like, it I know it's an old word, but he begins to court Israel for a year. And when they get, after the year, they get to the bottom of Mount Sinai, and God uses Moses. The, the, the word I like is the word matchmaker. Mm. Love that idea. Uh, it's one of my favorite, uh, uh, what's that lady's name? So Larry loves them.
1: Larry loves them. His favorite person, right? Larry loves the musical huh? Fiddler on the Roof.
0: Yeah, to me, it's the best musical of all.
1: And there's a matchmaker in there. Yeah. A Jewish matchmaker who well, is Yenta. Yenta.
0: Yeah, that's right. Yenta. Yenta.
1: Yeah. And she's all up. Matching everybody
0: up. If you want to get married, you got to go to this old woman named Yenta, and uh, she sort of helps. Uh, she'd be like a, an old-timey uh, match.com kind of thing oh, wow. is what she would be. She would be the original match.com. And I, if you have ever, if you have never seen *Federal on the Roof, you ought to go that's on and watch gr- it because it's, it's yeah. unbelievable. And there's this one of the main characters in the story is this matchmaker. Well, if you could imagine... Moses, who is also Jewish, that's a lovely little thing right there. Anyway, Moses is the matchmaker between Yahweh and the people of Israel. And Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, and God gives Moses the Ten Commandments and the uh the original plans for the tabernacle and 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 all those things. And sends Moses back down and what God tells Moses is I want to marry Israel I want Israel to be my bride and Moses comes down makes this offer of marriage to Israel and lo and behold what the Bible says is Israel declares we agree we accept Yahweh is our God Yahweh is our husband Yahweh is the one that we're gonna live for and obey and and follow yes to his offer. And so that's in verse that's in chapters 19 through 31. Yeah. So in 32, which is what you just read, God calls Moses back up on the mountain to get some more clarification and details about what their marriage relationship and God's plans for them are gonna look like. And then tragically, while Moses is up on the mountain, getting these directions from God, this clarification, Israel decides, well, this isn't what we planned on. This isn't working out the way we want. Where's Moses? We thought... It doesn't say exactly all that Israel expected But whatever Moses and Yahweh did wasn't right. It wasn't the plan that the people of God expected. And so while Moses is up getting these further plans and clarification on the marriage relationship, Israel gets mad, gets discouraged, gets frustrated, and they go to Aaron and basically they say, "Um, we married the wrong person. We have made a terrible mistake. Now, I want you to think about that just for a second. wonder, uh, hopefully I'm not talking to anybody in here, and if I am, I sure don't know it's you, and I don't want to know, okay? Um, But, uh, so don't be texting me or emailing me or calling me about it, because I don't want to know. But can you imagine getting married and really on the honeymoon, you realize, oh my goodness, I've married the wrong person. This person that I've married is not the person that I thought they were, uh, that I hoped they were. Um, This is, yeah, this is not, yeah.
1: So there's a book I teach called East of Eden. I mention it a lot because I love it. And in that book, there's a man named, it's a Cain and Abel retelling, and it's set in California, so it's set in modern times. But um, the Cain character, what he has killed in the Abel character, is the sense of home. Mm. It's a metaphor, right? He's, He's he's destroyed home. He can't go home again. So the Abel character, the very first, so he he grows up. The very first person he meets, the very first woman he meets, he snatches her up, just instantly. Which, um, which is with, not a good plan. Days. No, That's not it's not a, a good bad plan. Plan. A bad plan. Who
0: you marry. Within days. First one you meet. And That's says, <laughs> let's
1: get married. Well, <laughs> what he doesn't know is she's had a, a terrible situation too. And so she needs to get a, escape her situation. So anyway, long story short, long book short, he just marries her on the spot. And the reason he does, and she says yes, because she's trying to get out of a bad situation. The reason he does is because his sense of home has been murdered. Um, by his brother, and so he's just going to snatch up the first woman he can find to satisfy his
0: To recreate things. it. Yeah, yeah. to re- recreate yeah.
1: it, yeah. right? Well, y'all, she turns out to be one of the great villains in all of American literature. She's the worst. And so I talked to her last
0: week did in the counseling did session. You? I did, yeah. I sure <laughs> did. <laughs> yeah.
1: So immediately, he <laughs> realizes, pretty immediately, he realizes, oh, what I did was I married the wrong person.
0: Mm. Think about that. just
1: Oh, it's a disaster.
0: It's sort of like, you know, in almost every great movie that I'll enjoy, you know, all these disaster movies and adventure movies where you've got a guy and he's facing this impossible challenge to defeat evil or overcome or win, or whatever it is. And in the process of dealing with the challenge, he meets a girl and they, deal, they fight the battle together. They overcome together. And in the process, they fall in love. And then the movie ends with them. You re- well, they're going to get married and live happily. So y'all just met two days ago. And the only thing you have in common is this big thing that you just overcame together. And now y'all are going to get married. That's a, that, they, now there's your plan for relational success. Right there. And often the movie will end and you don't know how it's going to turn out. And that's good. Because that would not turn out well. You know, oh, we faced this earthquake together or this tidal wave or this mean guy or this war. Yeah. So, it's important to Moses as he's writing these words to us that we see that that is exactly what Israel is doing. They have married God, Yahweh, and literally within a handful of days, they come to the conclusion, we have married the wrong person. This is not the God that we thought He was, that we needed, wanted, and we want another God. It's important to Moses that we, that we see that. That they are rejecting this marriage covenant. They, with, they're, 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 they have betrayed the marriage covenant. They've walked away from it. Um, and it's also important, I believe, to Moses, since he wrote Genesis, where this all flows out of, and he's writing now Exodus, He wants us to see, and it's important that you see this, God, it's all God's ever wanted. From the very beginning of of Eden, what does God want? What does the person that has everything want? He wants one thing. He wants to create a covenant relationship with a people. It's the only thing that he does not have that he wants. And I realize that's poor wording, but you, you, you see what I'm saying. God, from the beginning, has wanted a people that he could have an intimate, loving, trust-filled, grace-filled, love-filled relationship with, and he has sought this people group from the very beginning, and he's trying to create this, and he gets to Mount Sinai, his wedding day, and he's excited about it, and he may, he offers these people his love, his heart, and they agree for a couple of days, for a few days, and then they no, no, thank you. They the the and nothing's changed God hasn't changed it's still that which God wants what does God want? Oh, He wants your money He wants your time, He wants your stuff He wants... No, God wants as far as like needs, nothing what He wants is a covenant relationship with me and you nothing has changed it's still that which He wants and pursues and is trying to create. It's what God has always wanted. And if you, well, I'm not sure I understand exactly what you mean by that. Read the little prophet Hosea and his marriage to Gomer, and that'll clarify it for you. Because that's exactly, it's exactly God's relationship with us. We are in, we make a mess of our lives. We, God comes to us and offers us His love and His ability to make right what we have messed up. And we say, Woo, thanks, I'm in. And we go along for a few days, few weeks, few months, few years. And then one day we realize, Well, this isn't what I want. I didn't sign on for this. God's not acting the way I want Him to, God's not manageable. God's not controllable. God doesn't consult me before he does things. It's almost as if he's better than me, wiser than me, sovereign, and I'm not I, I'm not I want somebody that'll obey me. You know who will obey me? Livestock. Livestock? By God, they'll do what I want. I want to milk you, I'll milk you. I want a hamburger, I'll get a hamburger. But lives, calves will obey. They'll cooperate. They'll do what I want. I can domesticate a cow, a calf. I'm having some real trouble domesticating Yahweh. Moses wants us to see this. And so Israel rejects a God that is uncontrollable and unmanageable. And they choose a God that fits more along the lines of their own terms. Well, it's important to Moses that we see the impact this has on Yahweh. So Moses goes back up. Moses goes up. He immediately sees, oh, this is, no, this is not good. <laughs> this is terrible. And so he runs back up the mountain And he gets in this cave, and that's when he's, that's when Shirley read what you read in Exodus 32, and he realizes that God is about to destroy Israel. God's hurt. God's grieved. God feels betrayed. He's angry because he's been rejected, and he's been betrayed. And so God offers Moses an incredible, he makes him two offers. God says, Moses, these people don't want me; they don't love me; they don't. They want out of this marriage, and if they want out of this marriage, okay. But do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to change this deal, and I'll make your descendants, your family, my covenant people. We'll start over again with you, and you've got two boys. We'll we'll start with them. Basically, what uh, Yahweh offers of uh, Moses is the Abrahamic covenant. I'll give you the Abrahamic covenant uh, covenant and we'll start over. Later on, Moses says no. <laughs> and I'd love to spend time on why he says no, but he says, think about this though. God offers Moses the position of Abraham. And the 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 opportunity for his descendants to be the chosen people of God. Moses declines and then Moses, and then God says, okay, Moses says, please don't reject Israel. Please don't reject the children of Abraham. And God says, okay, but I'm not going to go with y'all. There's no way. They don't want me to go with them. They, they don't love me. They don't want me. They don't need me. They, they think they... I'll send an angel to help you get to the promised land but I'm not going with you. And again, Moses says, no. God, in in fact, if if you don't honor your covenant with Abraham's children, kill me. And if you won't go with us, because you being with us is what makes us different. It's the only thing. Nothing separates us from the rest of the world but that. We are the same broken, selfish, mean, contrary uh, people group that every other people group in the universe is. Except there's only one thing that makes us unique. And that's that you dwell with us. So if you don't go, if, if you don't honor your promised Abraham, and if you don't go with us, we're not going and you can just kill me. And through the intercession of Moses, he, interce- he, he, he offers God five intercessory prayers up there in this cave. And he begs God, please don't kill these people. I know that you should, but I beg you not to. And God, please don't leave us, don't abandon us, don't desert us. And and God agrees.
1: This is a message about God and not particularly about Moses, I think. But um, just as a sidebar, think of only a a truly humble person Mm. could even think those thoughts. Um,
0: The the humble—well, in fact, the Bible says that he's one of the most humble people that ever lived.
1: And the relationship that humility has with God. Versus the, the relationship that pride has with God, which is tenuous at best, with humility in God.
0: Pride and also uh, a, a passion for success. An expectation. Yeah, job, I, I, I want to move up the ladder. Well, I'm giving you the chairman of the board. I don't want the chairman of the board. If I can't have my people with me, I don't want the chairman of the yeah. board. Yeah. I'll lose that before I lose them. You think about that. Thank you for saying what you're saying. That was not rehearsed. But this is a lesson not about Moses and not about Israel. It's about God. And what this passage in Exodus 32 in particular reveals to us about God. And I've got five things. I don't know that I'll get to all of them because I've got five minutes. But I'm going to try to do one minute per, per thing here.
1: We'll see how what? that goes. Okay.
0: Who is this Yahweh that's talking to Moses in this cave? One of the things that I think this passage reveals to us, that the the God of the Bible, well, I'm not comfortable with this. I don't know that I agree with this. That's fine. Nobody's arguing with you. But this is what the Bible says. Now, you can deal with it. But the Bible would reveal a God who has deep emotion. He feels. He's not a statue of stone. He's not somebody that cannot be hurt. This is a God that loves deeply, but He also can be wounded deeply. He is a true husband. He's a true parent. He's a true friend. And in your relationships with mates, Children and friends, the emotions that you experience, the God of the Bible experiences. Moses wants us to see that. This attitude, well, it's God. He'll get over it. We can't really hurt God. That's a lie, according to this passage. Number two, very significant that Let's just say it's 33 times. I'm not sure if it's 33, 32, 34. But this passage in Exodus 34 is repeated in some manner 33, 34, 35 times. 80% of those requotes only focus on the first five attributes. Verse 6. God is a God of compassion. He's a God of grace. He's slow to anger. He is a God of covenant love and He is a God of faithfulness. It leaves out the second part. It does give us the second part, but 80% of the time it focuses on the first part. What does that say to us? What should it say to us? It should say to us that if you... God has lots of qualities but if you cut God he bleeds compassion. If you poke God what comes out is grace, covenant love, a slowness to get angry. He possesses other qualities but that which he defaults to that his bent, his first reaction when he responds to our lives, he responds with compassion and grace and covenant love and mercy and forgiveness. If you read carefully verses verse 7, where it talks about the sins of the parents being uh, placed upon the, the third and fourth generations if you read that verse carefully and you read the other verses in the Bible that quote that carefully, here's what you will discover. You will discover that what God is saying is simply this. I'm going to relate to all people of all generations the same. I am, I am eat up with compassion and mercy and covenant love. That's my default. That's my bent. But I will not let those attributes cause me to treat you differently than I treat you. Or I won't let it treat you. You're a Jew and you're a Hittite. Or you're a, a Persian and you're a Babylonian, or you're in the, uh, the uh, first century and you're in the 20th century. what God is saying is, I'm going to respond to all people. first generation after a sin through all I will always respond to people in consistency I will always be dependable I will always be trustworthy best example of this guys is when it comes to Nineveh we taught we studied uh, Jonah last fall and you remember what Jonah said to God he got mad at God uh, when he's sitting out there in the desert hoping that God's going to destroy the Ninevites and what Jonah says he quotes Exodus 34 6 and 7 But the context of him quoting it is God. I knew you'd act like this. I knew you'd do this. You always. If people will turn away from their sin and cry out to you for mercy, you are consistent. You are faithful. You're dependable. We can. I I knew you'd forgive them, and you did, Hmm. and you did. That's the point of of verse 7, of Exodus 34, 7. It is that God responds to everyone, red or yellow, black or white, male or female, young, old, people that live in this land or people that live in any land and of any age. God is faithful, he's dependable, he's trustworthy, he's consistent. Yahweh is not capricious. He's not like the gods that other people create where you're wondering how's he going to act today? How's he going to feel about me today? He's not. He treats all people and all generations the same. All right. I know I got to quit. So I'm going to quit with this last. I won't get to the last one today but I'll get to the I did four. Okay. If you don't hear anything else today I beg you to hear this. I beg you. Sin has great power. And according to Exodus 34, 7, sin has the power to impact people to the third and the fourth generation. We live in a world where every day people's sins impact other people. My sin impacts you. Your sin impacts me. People in Washington, their sin impacts us. Everyone understands this idea that sin has the power to impact, to impact greatly. It expands in its impact. But don't miss the power of one righteous man who understands that if I cry out to this God of compassion, this God of grace this God that is slow to anger this God of covenant love this God of faithfulness I can change the destinies of people their millions of sins are no match for my words of intercession when I'm talking to Yahweh Yes, they have also, there's millions of these people, and they've done terrible wrong. But that, and and it has power, terrible power. But it is deadly compared to the power of one person, one righteous person person who understands if I cry out to Yahweh in faith and I don't let him go, I will not let him go until he hears and he heeds what I'm asking him because I'm praying for things that are big. That Oh, I didn't get that job promotion. Oh, my kid didn't get on this baseball team. Oh, we didn't get this house that we wanted. You can pray about all that crap if you want, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about big things, generational things, destiny things, begging God for your son who might not today be on the right road, but we don't stop interceding and begging God. Well, it's been years. That doesn't matter a bit. That doesn't matter a bit. Years to an eternal God? The power of one righteous man. One righteous person. I don't mean man like me. I mean us who say, God, there are things that I know are consistent with your heart, your priorities, your values, your plans. And it's not going right. It's not going the way I know it's supposed to go. I'm going to bug you until you honor what I'm at. Not because you don't want to do it. I'm not talking you into something. But there's something, there's a power, there's a connection, there's something internal about one righteous person who sees what God wants and they continue to cry out to God until God honors what He's. What they're asking for. Don't miss that. If you miss that, you've missed what we're talking about here. And we 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 we, we just need to see that. Okay, I didn't said enough. I know. I know. All right. Lord help us. Thank you, friend. You look cute. We're gonna take the Lord's Supper. I beg y'all it is easy to feel like we are little leaves being blown in our society's wind we are helpless and vulnerable and dependent on the whims of the more powerful I feel that way too but the declaration of God's Word is give your millions of sins and rebellion and betrayal and wrong give it your best shot and I will stand between your sin and a holy God and I will pray to him because he's bigger than these problems whatever the problems are internally in our family in our community, in our church, in our land, in our world. And me and God can do more in intercession than all the laws, all the policemen, all the groups charging. And I'm not saying anything negative about laws or or policemen or groups. That's not my point. You know what I'm saying. We need to be a people of prayer. And not let God go until He honors what we know He wants. I'm not talking about little old Sears and Roebuck catalog stuff. I'm talking about real stuff, life-changing stuff. Okay. Um, We're going to take the Lord's Supper. Kevin, Lisa, y'all come up here and help me. And um, uh, Karuna and Annie, y'all come up here. Please, I don't need to boss you. I'm sorry, y'all. Y'all, uh, take the. We have wine. Well, we have juice that's open, and if you want that, get some of this bread from me. Or we have it covered, and you can. It has both there. Um, we eat and we drink each week. That which symbolizes the body and the blood of the the Son of God. And we do that just to remind ourselves and to declare to one another that He is a God of compassion. He is a God of grace. He is a God that is slow to anger. He is a God of covenant love. He is a God of faithfulness. And He proved it most clearly and most powerfully when He sent His Son to die on the cross for our sins. If you're, well, I'm not sure he's one of those or all of those. He sent his son to die on the cross for me and you. That sort of settles it. If that is your belief and testimony and hope, then I invite you to come and eat and drink and give thanks.